Y'all stand with me. I'm going to read Psalm 95 as we get started today. Psalm 95, this will be our call to worship. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker.
Once again, we have a huge crop of babies. If y'all want to just turn and look at me, I'm going to really talk to you. Y'all get to listen, but I'm really talking to our moms and our dads and our families today. So, am I not in here? Sorry. This is not my normal. Here we are, gathered once again, not only to welcome but to celebrate these beautiful new additions to our family. God is so good, and we praise him for each new image bearer that we see before us today. Lots of new image bearers today. We desire as your church family to walk alongside you, to lift your hands when they're weary, and to be a continual source of strength and encouragement as you continue on the journey of parenting and building your family. This begs the question though, what is a family and what is God's purpose in creating families? The parenting class that we've been running this fall is called Visionary Parenting. And they've done a fantastic job in answering that precise question. The authors, Rob and Amy Rhinow, have clearly cast a vision for us regarding a biblical perspective on God's purpose for the family. So I'm actually reading from the book you an excerpt from the book. Why did, <laughs> why did God create your family, our families? Quoting the book, chapter one. 
In our journey to discover God's purpose for our family, it will begin in Matthew 22, 35 through 38. One of the religious leaders of the day came to Jesus and asked him a profound question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So according to Jesus, we are created to know and love God with our whole being. Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy 6. So let's look back to the words that God inspired Moses to write 1,400 years before Jesus was born. In these verses, not only will we find the commandment from God that Jesus says is the most important in all of Scripture, but we will also learn what God wants us to do with it. Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command to you today shall be on your heart. Here we find the two foundations for the Christian life. A love for God and a love for his word. You and your children will be under continual attack to love things more than God and to trust things more than the Bible. Notice the focus and priority on your heart. God knows what our sinful hearts tend to do with religion. We tend to make it all about what we know and what we do. You see, the point is this. God knows that if he has our hearts, he'll get everything else. We follow and serve what we truly love. More than anything else, God wants your heart and he wants the hearts of your children. End of the book. So we see this is a very clear call. Love God with everything you have in you and teach your children to do the same. Not daunting at all. Rebecca sent me the pictures that y'all sent her. <laughs> they were so beautiful and they made me smile. I was scrolling through and looking at all those little babies and it just made me happy. But more than that, what really struck me, um, more than their beauty, was this. Every one of those little babies, I knew who they belonged to before I saw the name. So I recognized their face. How did I do that? How did I know them? They look like you, Mom. They look like you, Dad. As they grow, they're not just going to continue to resemble you physically. They will also look like you in the manner that you choose to live. Sorry. How you live your life, as you live your life, in loving submission to the Father, remember, they're watching. And as you walk, so will they. And one more thing, a word about marriage. If we look back to Genesis, we see that the first social institution that God created was the husband-wife relationship. Because it's a first, that makes it a priority. Therefore, your marriage is actually the priority relationship in your family. So make sure to tend your marriages, not as an afterthought, but with intentionality. So dad, 
when you come home, talk to mom first. And moms, talk to dad about the discipline and the training issues that you're working on throughout the day. Bring him in on it. Work as a team. And the reason is this. The best gift you can ever give your children is unity with your spouse. You will never be a better parent than you are a spouse. So tend your marriages first and your children after that. Now we're going to let you introduce your precious little babies to our congregation. Um, and the reason we're doing it this way is so that the names are pronounced correctly. I don't think I would do that. So when we call the name, can you, sorry, when we call the name, can you please put the picture up for that family, okay? So start with the Lombards. John, come on up. In, one other thing, tell me, tell us all how you chose the name for your child. For this little one, Samuel John Lombard, he's actually named after my great-grandfather, who was Samuel John Lombardo. I'm supposed to be a Lombardo, but my grandfather dropped the O later in life. I'd like to reclaim it, but it costs too much money. Okay, Samuel John Lombard. Okay. Gotros. Um, her name is Hannah Gotro. We named her after uh, the miscarriage. The, the second child we were going to have was going to be called Hannah, according to Rachel, anyways. So then we decided to name her Hannah in remembrance of, well, the boy or girl that we were going to have. All right. Blazex. We actually have two. We're a little late on Luke. <laughs> But uh, Luke's name is Luke Thomas Blazik, and his middle name is named after my middle name and my dad's first name. And then we've got Timothy Edward Blazik, who's named after um, Sarah, or his middle name is named after Sarah's grandfather. And his first name, Timothy, I liked because it was one of the first Bible or books of the Bible that I got to study with my pastor growing up, and just like the name. Johnsons. <clears throat> this is Jovi Ahava Johnson. And uh, her first name, for each child, we wanted to have a place that represented me and their mama. So uh, Jovi is a representation of joy, jovial, but also um, it is a representation of where I come from, South Louisiana. It's a Louisiana Creole name. Um, and Ahava is like self-sacrificial love, as far as I understand. And so we wanted her to have a biblical Hebrew name. All right, Stewarts. This is Ella Marie Stewart. Uh, we chose the name Ella because it was a happy middle ground between our two grandmothers, Helen and uh, Elizabeth Marie Stewart. And uh, we chose 
middle name Ella Marie because uh, on account of both my grandmother and Anna's great-grandmother. All right. Reynolds. This is uh, Graham Allen Reynolds. Um, he is named for my mom. The boys used to call her Grammy. And so that's what his, uh, his name. And then the Buzzwells. This is Mila Grace Buswell. Um, we actually had a really hard time picking a name. <laughs> we went rounds and rounds. So I finally said this baby will be born with no name, and I'm fine with that. And then, of course, that's about when we found uh, Mila, Mila Grace. Mila means miracle, and a lot of y'all walked through the uh, trials that we went through last year. Uh, me losing an ovary and not sure if we would even have another child. We weren't planning to have another child, but if we could, we didn't know that would be possible. And, of course, we all know that grace is the love and kindness of God. And so this is our little miracle and the proof of God's love and kindness. Thank you for sharing the story of your names. I really enjoy hearing how the Lord um, puts it on your heart, and so many of the names point to heritage, the heritage from which they come, and I love that. Okay, we're going to do our parental affirmations. I'm going to ask you a question, and you're going to answer with, we do, and then at the very end, church family. We're going to show our solidarity with these young families, and I'm going to ask you a question, and we're going to have a resounding we will at the end of that. Do you today recognize that these children are gifts from God, and do you give heartfelt thanks for God's blessing? Do you now dedicate your children to the Lord and commit before both him and our church family to intentionally do all in your power to teach these precious blessings to love the Lord with their entire being, body, soul, and spirit, so that we can see them safely home with Jesus when their days on the earth are completed. Do you pledge as parents with God's fatherly help that you will bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord making every reasonable effort with patience and love to build the word of God, the character of Christ, and the joy of the Lord into their lives. Do you promise to provide for the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual needs of your children, looking to your heavenly Father for the wisdom, love, and strength to serve them faithfully? And do you promise with God's help to make it your regular prayer that by God's grace, your children will come to trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the redemption of their souls? Church family, a word to you. Church family, are you willing to take the responsibility to love and support these parents as they work to pass on their faith to their children, promising to love them, equip them, 
pray for them and with them, supporting them by example and involvement in their lives as they work towards this end. If you agree, please say, we will. Amen. We're going to have a prayer of blessing over our families. Let's pray. God, I pray for John and Marjorie and for Chris and Tiffany and for Daniel and Sarah and for Nikki and Julius and for Evan and Anna, Jonathan and Shannon and Carmen and Ethan. And God, I pray that they would love the Lord, the God, their God, with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their might. And that the words that you have commanded to them today, that they would put them on their heart. And I pray that they would teach their children diligently. And that they should talk to their children when they sit in their house and when they walk by their way. And when they lie down and when they rise up. I pray that they would bind them as a sign on your hand. And that they shall be as frontlets between their eyes. I pray that they would do this for their kids. And may, God, I pray that you would bless them and that you would keep them. And that your face would shine upon their family. And you would be gracious to them and give them peace in their home. And I pray this in your name. Amen. they're moving back, you all stand with me. Uh, every week here for the last handful of weeks and into the next year, we're going to be doing, we have been doing, we're going to be doing the New City Catechism. And a catechism is simply a, a mechanism for teaching and passing on the faith. And so this week's question is, uh, is quite applicable to the discipline and instruction of the Lord because it's, it's going into the law. So there will be a question and we're going to read the answer together. The answer will be behind me on the screen. So last week's question asked, you know, how do we glorify God? And we talked about obeying His commands and His laws. And so this week's question says, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? Say this with me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. The law's function is, is first and foremost to teach us about God, to show us what He's like, to reveal His holy character to us. Um, but when we read the law, when we discover God's holy character, we recognize that is not me. So a second purpose of the law is to convict us of our sin and of God's righteousness. 
And when, when we, as believers, encounter the law and we feel that conviction, what that's supposed to do in us is that's God's kindness to us, leading us, drawing us, beckoning us to repentance. And so when we read the law as believers justified by the perfect life, the righteous death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus, His atoning work, uh, it's meant to make us fly to Him, flee to Him, run to Him, cling to Jesus. In other words, the law, when we read it, should make us turn our eyes upon Jesus. We should look to Him. So let's sing that very truth. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.
What a Savior, right? What a Savior we have. Um, the, the next song that we're going to sing is, uh, is maybe one that you haven't heard before, uh, but it's an old hymn kind of revamped with a new chorus. It's called Hallelujah, What a Savior. Uh, it's, it's not a hard song to learn, so I'm just asking you stick with it and, uh, and sing it as best you can. Make a joyful noise. That's all that you can do. Just make a joyful noise. Let your heart uh, just issue forth in worship. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have.
so great a salvation guilty vile and helpless we spotless lamb of God was he and yet he was lifted up to die in our place for sins that we committed for which we were guilty and deserve full condemnation. Jesus, thank you that you've satisfied the wrath of God in our place, that you are alive and reigning as our glorious King, and that you will return one day to bring your people home to yourself. Lift our eyes to the glory that's coming so that we might run this race with endurance. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all can be seated. Normally, we would dismiss the kids at this moment, but we're going to pause that because we're going to do, this is a risky thing, we're going to do a, a song um, that is intended to be kind of a special music.
But when we came to Hebrews 12 and we were in the text that we're in today, this song is just too good not to do. So this song is not about the, the people on the stage performing for you, uh, for your enjoyment. This song is people who love these truths singing for your edification. So there is a huge, vast difference between those two. And so my prayer is that this song undergirds the message that Kevin is about to come and proclaim from Hebrews chapter 12. This song is called A Pilgrim's Progress. And the the second little line is keep running. Um, Really quickly, just I want to share something. So uh, we picked my wife up from the airport yesterday. And we were standing outside of the airport and we were tracking her plane. And so I I could see what direction it was going to come from. I knew that it was coming uh, from that direction. It was going to land. And, and my kids grew impatient. When is she going to be here? When are we going to see her plane? And I said, look, just, just watch. It's, it's going to happen. It's coming. And let me just tell you, there was a moment when the plane wasn't there, and there was a moment when the plane was there, and we could see it. And we just jumped up and down, and we were so excited because she was back. And y'all, as I thought about that, like, There's glory that is coming. Jesus, our Savior, is going to return. Just as surely as he went into heaven, he will come back for his own. And so all we have to do is lift our eyes and watch. And there will be a moment when he's not here, and there will be a moment when he is, and everything will be right on that day. And until then, the call for us is to keep running. Lord, I'm tired, so tired from traveling this straight narrow is so much harder than I thought on this path I've met both doubt and pain and I've heard the voices say yeah you've given all you've got but there's a cloud of witnesses the ones who run this race and even louder than my fears they're crying for your lift your face keep running keep running don't lose heart don't you give up now don't turn around you've got to find a way somehow keep reaching keep fighting Voices call, saying, Boy, you're bound to fall with 
But I remember there was one who died to win this race. He took the cross, he crushed the grave, and oh, I can hear my Savior say, keep running, keep running, don't lose heart, don't you give up now, don't turn kids, like I said, older kids dismissed. Good to see you. Um, maybe next time I'll graduate to the big boy pulpit. I can never do that when it's just a little too tall for me, so I'll just do the, do the music stand. But 
for those of you who are visiting this morning, it's so good to have you. So glad that you're here. Uh, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm typically the guy leading worship, and Zach so graciously um, agreed to lead worship for us today. So, um, and particularly thank you for that last song. And I, I want to come back at the very end to that chorus uh, that they just sang. But because it does strike right at the heart of where we're at in the book of Hebrews right now. So if you are visiting this morning, we have been in the book of Hebrews for the entire year. We go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so we are uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 this morning. We've got two chapters left. And the cool thing about these two verses, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, that they perhaps encapsulate the two main themes of Hebrews in a perfect way. The first theme, and we've seen this over and over again as we've looked at this book, is that Jesus is far greater than you could possibly imagine or think. That's the first theme. And the second is literally what we just sang. Don't give up. Keep running. Keep the faith. Get to the finish line. So let's do this. Can we stand one more time? Let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 together. And something that we do here is uh, we'll read the passage, and I will say the word of the Lord, and then if you can respond by saying, thanks be to God, okay? So let me read this together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this morning you would help us to hear your word with open hearts that we may truly understand. And as we understand that we may believe in believing that we may run our race in all faithfulness and obedience and that we would seek your honor and your glory in all that we do. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. You can have a seat. And so as we look at these two verses, we're going to do it this way today. We're just going to take verse 1 and 2 and divide them out into some key phrases. And so in verse 1, we're going to look at three phrases that we see there, and then we're going to look at six phrases in verse 2. And so if you have your Bibles out, this will be pretty easy to follow along and know where we're at. So first phrase in verse 1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That first phrase. So this is a reminder to us, before anything else, that the book of Hebrews is actually a letter, right? And it's a letter that was originally not divided out into chapters and verses like we have it. But the author is just continuing the conversation from chapter 11, what we've been in for the past four weeks. But that there is a hinge word. There. It says, therefore. 
That hinge word, therefore, transitions us from this, this exposition and the description of the saints that we've seen in chapter 12, or in chapter 11, to in chapter 12, now we're given a call to action. There's something for us to do going forward. We're meant to do something with this information from chapter 11. These aren't just stories of dead men and dead women from another time that we can admire, but there is an intent and there is a purpose why the author spent so much time in chapter 11 bringing us through these examples of faith. And so the word surrounded assumes that we as the people reading the letter, the saints of today, you and me, that we're aware of the presence of these witnesses. Now, it gives a picture of a great stadium that we're in. And there are spectators as far as the eye can see on all sides of us. This author describes it he, in this way as a cloud of witnesses, which is kind of unique to the Bible. We don't see this often. And so this cloud of witnesses, and it's not just that there's a lot of witnesses, it's not just a quantity of witnesses, but that it is the quality of the witnesses that we're seeing there too. It's the hall of faith, all the big guys, right? This is who is surrounding us. It's those who have gone before, and something that they've done that we haven't yet is that all those witnesses have finished the race. They're done. The analogy of a race or sports competition is what this author uses to encourage the reader. So let me tell you something that happened to me about a month ago. Uh, I went, I don't know how I've gone throughout my life not doing this, but I went to my first Major League Baseball game about a month ago. Uh, went to Dallas, and it was the Texas Rangers versus the Houston Astros. And so it was a work trip, went to the Globe Life Stadium in Arlington. We had great seats. Uh, we were like in the VIP section and all this stuff. Now, keep in mind that the last time I played baseball was when I was about 10 years old. Uh, I did the pitching machine at 8 and 9, and then whenever other 10-year-olds started throwing, throwing the ball at me, and I saw the guy before me get pelted, I was out. And so I just started playing soccer from then on out. And so, but anyway, that's another story. But at this baseball game, I'm just a random guy in the crowd cheering them on, which by the way, the, the Astros won 15 to one. It was kind of a slaughter, um, but nevertheless, it was fun to, to watch and see. So, but I'm just a random guy in the crowd. But like, imagine if you're this player for the Texas Rangers and all of a sudden, you look up in the crowd, and who do you see? You see all-star, former Texas Ranger pitcher. You probably know who I'm going to say. Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan is out there in the stands. This guy with seven no-hitters, almost 6,000 strikeouts. One of the greats, the Ryan Express is what they called him. So you've got a guy like that watching, giving his support. That changes things. That's the caliber for me and you who we are surrounded by in our race. But let's take it a step further than that because that really doesn't do it justice at all. But the ultimate goal of this passage, it's not to draw attention to these witnesses, right? 
It's not meant to draw attention to these great men and women of faith, but what they represent. These saints, what they have done in their lives and what we look you know, day after day, week after week at their stories is that they bear witness to the faithfulness of God in sustaining their life. So when we look at passages like Hebrews 11 or we look at these Old Testament passages, like these are witnesses to what God has done in these people, that he has kept them and they have finished the race because of his faithfulness to them. And as we look back upon how God kept them and sustained them, we can have that same confidence that the same God of them is the same God for us and that he will do it again for us. Let's go to the next phrase. It says, let us also lay aside every weight and sing and sin which clings so closely. So this phrase addresses that this is as we prepare for the race, that we don't have anything on us that would slow us down. Now, the athlete in the race obviously isn't carrying anything, and even the clothes that he or she wears is designed not to hinder at all, right? Around this time, when this letter was written in the first century, runners from that time, they would typically enter the stadium with these long, flowing, colorful robes. And then whenever the race was about to start, you know what they would do? They would take them off, and they're wearing virtually nothing to race, they're wearing virtually nothing. There's not the slightest thing that they would have on to weigh them down from winning the prize that they were set upon. And so I thought this week about this whenever I'm looking at, you know, lay aside every weight. Like, what do weights do that hinder the runner? And that might seem like an elementary question, like, well, yeah, of course, we know the answer to that, but just think about it for a minute. What do weights do that hinder the runner? Well, first of all, the obvious answer is that it slows them down, right? Weights slow them down. They can't run as fast. But another answer is this, is that it makes them tired quicker. They get fatigued quicker where they can't run as far. And their muscles might be aching. Their breathing might be labored. And, there's, and when that happens right there, there's this real danger that happens that they're not going to finish the race. They're not going to be able to finish. And it's interesting that the author uses this language to describe sin next, that Sin that clings so closely is what it says in the ESV. Or in other translations, it might say, sin that so easily entangles. Al Mohler says this, and I, I mean, this struck me this week. He said that one of the most horrifying truths about sin is that it clings to the sinner. And all of us in this room know that to be true, Right? It's very easy to pick up sin and excruciatingly difficult at times to put it back down. And throughout the entirety of your life and my life, 
Sin, sin never stops coming. It never stops assaulting us. The sense that the author of Hebrews gives is that this sin wants to cling to you for this purpose, for the purpose of preventing you from moving in the way that you were meant to move. This is sin that wants to change your path or at the very least slow your movement. And there's this picture of like of this sin that is grabbing onto you and is coming around you and is hindering you moving to the left and, and to the right. And you're not able to move how you were meant to. One distinction to make regarding sin and weights as we see here is that now all sin is weight. All sin is weight, but some weights may not necessarily be sin. But they can still be a hindrance to your race. A weight can be something that distracts you, something that may not be a sin in itself, but, but it draws your eye away from putting everything you have into this holy endeavor, this race that you are set to run. Let's go on to the next phrase. It's, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's the last phrase in verse 1. So if the preparation for the race was, you know, the, the laying aside of weight and sin, then here's the positive side of the coin. Running the race. Actually getting in there and running. And, and this is a very common analogy that we see in the epistles. Uh, Paul uses this same example of running in several places. Let's just go to two real quick. The first is 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. I think it's going to be on the screen. It says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So, they do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not to run aimlessly. I box in such a way as to avoid hitting air. But I strictly discipline my body and make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That word disqualified right there, that is a reminder that winning is not optional. Let me say that again. In the Christian life, winning is not optional. There is no second place. There is no honorable mention. Your options in running this race are to win or to lose. You either win or lose, guys. And there is nothing more serious or important in your life than this truth. Let's go to the second passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved 
is appearing. I love that. To all who loved his appearing, that the Lord will award this crown of righteousness. Are you looking to his appearing today, church? Are we just going throughout our life, just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and, and forget that we have a God who's coming back to redeem people for his own? And make no mistake, he is coming back. So going back to Hebrews 12, the author speaks of running the race with endurance, a pressing on to the end in spite of the difficulties that we may face. That we see this same word being used in Hebrews 10, 36, where he says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This was a real problem that this audience had, this, the Hebrew Christians had, that they were in danger of falling away. And how, how many times over the past year have we talked about that? Their perseverance was waning. They had grown, they'd grown sluggish. And many had forgotten their purpose and their reason for remaining in the faith. And so here in another passage, there is a clear connection between endurance and submitting to discipline and self-discipline. But we'll talk about that, I think, next week in chapter 12. But in this context, it is a running marked by effort and struggle and conflict. There's no point in sugarcoating it. It's tough, guys. But regardless of whether it's tough or easy, it is this. It is a path set before us. Or in some translations, it says that this is the race lying before us. This is a race that is set before you, ordained by the Lord. You didn't haphazardly find yourself on the track wondering how you got there. No, that's not the case at all. God put you there. God put you on the track. You were chosen. You were called by name. And Peter is talking to the believers in his first letter, and he greets them in this way in verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Benithia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Your path has been laid out. This is what you were made for. Let's go to verse 2, if we can. Here the focus shifts from our actions, what we do running the race, to, thankfully, the one who empowers us to get there. So the first phrase we're going to look at is looking to Jesus. Some translations will say fixing our eyes on Jesus. The Greek word for looking, it's hard for us to have an equivalent in the English language. It doesn't just mean to look at an object, to look at something, but it also, but in doing so, 
we're turning our look away from something else. So it's not only looking to an object, but in doing so, not looking at something else, turning our gaze away. That we're not focusing on the cloud of witnesses, as good as that is. We're not looking at the sins that want to cling to us. We're not looking at anything else that would distract us. No, we are looking to the person of Jesus Christ and we're moving ahead. The path to making it to the end, the path to running with endurance, this is literally it, guys. We fix our eyes, our gaze upon him. The next phrase, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You may have heard this said in other translations as maybe the author and finisher of our faith. This is a description given to Jesus and Jesus alone. No one else qualifies for this title other than him. No other saint back in Hebrews 11 can make this claim. They walked by faith, but they were not the source of faith itself, right? When the author says founder, he is acknowledging that Christ is the pioneer, the author, the source of not just our faith, but faith, period. Probably a more accurate translation of this text would be to leave the word our out and just say that Jesus is the author and finisher of faith, period. He founded it. And it's the only way to salvation. And he is the finisher and perfecter of our faith through his finished work. And through his ministry as our high priest, faith is accomplished in us and we can know that we are his and our salvation is secure. And as we run this race here on earth, Jesus is the perfect example of the faith that we are to express. And he is with us at the starting line. He is with us at the finish line. And every place along the race, he is with us the entirety of the way. Because it is the race that he set for us, right? Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to start it. He's going to finish it. Let's go on to the next phrase. It says, who for the joy that was set before him. Who for the joy that was set before him. So, whenever I read that, my question is, is that what is the joy that was set before Jesus? Well, one thing that we can definitely say that the joy was not... The joy wasn't the cross. The pain of the cross wasn't the joy. His joy comes from where Jesus cries aloud in the Gospels. He cries, Father, glorify your name. The joy set before Jesus was this, was completing the work that he had been called to do. This miraculous work of reconciling man to himself by both redeeming a fallen world to himself and also bringing glory to the Father. 
This was helpful to me this week as I read. Philip Huth says this. Listen to this. His joy, which is indeed the fullness of joy, is the joy also of his elect. For it is his will that his own joy should dwell in them so that their joy, like his, may be full. And it was his prayer that they might have his joy fulfilled in themselves. His joy is the joy of heaven over every sinner who repents and turns to the Father's home, over every lost sheep that is found, over every son that was dead and now is alive again. As we said back in verse 1, the race that was set before us. But for Jesus, it was joy that was set before him. And because of that, this joy is ours. Let's go to the next phrase. Endured the cross in verse 2. Endured the cross. This is the only direct reference to the cross that we see in the book of Hebrews Again, we see another parallel from verse 1. Like, we've been called to run with endurance, right? And then we see in verse 2 this ultimate example of endurance. Make no mistake that Jesus endured the cross. When we look at running with endurance, this is our example. Under the heaviest load that anyone could imagine bearing, Jesus refused to stray from the task that he'd been given. He didn't just stray, or he didn't just not stray, I mean. He kept his tongue from lashing out against those who were persecuting him. He showed unwavering love and compassion to those who were killing him. He showed a miraculous steadfastness and patience in the midst of the worst pain imaginable. We can see this in 1 Peter 2, 23 through 24. It says this, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For Jesus, this, just, this wasn't just a passive acceptance of death. But this was an active taking the cross on himself. All because he knew what was coming. The joy that was yet to come. Let's go on to the next. Despising the shame. Now, out of all the phrases in these two verses, this was the most unclear to me. As I looked at this this week, like what does this mean, despising the shame? When we look at the cross and what it represented at the time, this was a criminal's death for criminals. Crucifixion was a humiliating way to die in the public nature of it, in the agonizing nature of it, and what it was designed to communicate about the person who was experiencing it. It was meant at its very core to bring shame and it was meant to bring dishonor upon the person who was being crucified. And shame is not something that we welcome, right? 
but it can be crippling when you go through it. If you experience shame in your life, that could be something that is not just crippling, paralyzing. It can be something that just stops you dead in your tracks. In places like Daniel 12, Daniel 12 verse 2, they clearly connect shame with judgment. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, it doesn't say that Jesus loved the shame. Far from it. It's the opposite of that. He despised the shame. It was degrading, right? He despised the shame that this shame reached into the furthest depths of sinful man and Christ bore it all upon his body. But even then, he willfully accepted it and didn't let this shame stop him from his prize, his goal, what we just read, the joy set before him. And the last phrase in verse 2, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This may be the greatest news for us today that we've read thus far. We know that this phrase, what does it speak of? It speaks of the glorification of Jesus, that he was raised and that he was seated at the Father's right hand, at the highest place of honor that there is, and he was triumphant and that he finished the task that was set before him. It is finished, right? He completed the task and finished the race. Way back in chapter 1 in Hebrews, it talks about this glorification. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So when we look at the race set before us, here's why this is incredible news for us, that the one who is seated at the right hand of God is the one who makes intercession for us and waits for us you, me, to cry out to him. And as we cry out to him, he and he alone gives us the endurance that we require to run the race and ultimately get to the end. Doesn't that give more weight to passages like Philippians 4.13 where it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This all things that Paul is speaking about is the strength to endure, regardless of circumstances, in abundance or in need or in fullness or hunger. It's this supernatural power that Christ gives for us to keep going and to ultimately not lose heart, to not grow weary. And so as we've read these past two verses, and as we look to apply those, instead of giving points of application, here's what I want to do this morning, if this is okay. I just want to ask a few questions of us as we meditate on this passage. And this is for you to wrestle with the Lord about. It's for me to wrestle with the Lord about in my life. 
First question. What is weighing you down from running the race that you should run? What sin have you picked up that you can't seem to figure out how to put down? I would encourage you, involve another believer in this process. Go to them today. And for some of us, this could be the difference in finishing the race or stalling on the second lap and just leaving the stadium. What is weighing you down from running the race that you have been called to run? Another question. What is your role in others' races? Are you actively encouraging those close to you in their pursuit of Christ? Do they leave conversations and encounters with you with a deeper love for Christ and a desire to pursue Him? Can that be said of us? Another question. What steps do you need to take in your life to run your race better? And when I mean better, I mean with intentionality. What intentional things can we do in our lives to run our race? Maybe for some of us, it is you know, putting aside things. It is trading lesser things for better things. To be in a regular habit of Bible study and a prayer and just being a part of one another's lives. Let me just tell you this, guys. Discipline is not a four-letter word. Discipline is a gift that I feel like in my life I know so woefully little about, but desire to grow in that. Discipline is a grace and a blessing of the Lord that He uses to do wonderful things in the life of you and me and our church. Another question. If you were to get down to the deepest part of you, what is your true motivation for running the race in the first place? Is it just something that you do, something that you've done most of your life? Or is it this insatiable obsession and desire that you will one day see God? This is the end of the race, that we will see God, every one of us in this room. I read Psalm 17 this morning. The last verse, it says, as for me, this is David's gaze as he looked to eternity. He said, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. When we see God, 
we shall be satisfied with who he is. It will be better than anything that our minds could even fathom. Seeing him, knowing him. Is that your motivation for running this race? Let us not forget that. And then one more question and we'll be done. This may apply to you, but are you even on the track? Are you running at all right now? Do you, do you know what we're talking about? Have you experienced the redeeming work of Jesus in your life? If you have not, today can be that day where you start your race And Christ in his love and compassion and sovereignty will see you through to that final day. So if you are not on the track today, or if you don't know if you are, come talk to me. Come talk to Zach. Come talk to any one of us. We'd love to pray with you. So I said at the beginning that we're going to go back to the song that Zach sang at the end. So Let's end our time today with the words of that chorus. Keep running, keep running. Don't lose heart. Don't you give up now and don't turn around. You've got to find a way somehow to keep reaching, keep fighting. The pain cannot compare to the reward that will be yours, that waits in store for those who just keep running. Don't stop. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, strengthen us. Give us supernatural ability and strength to live out the text that we've read and heard today. Lord, we acknowledge and we confess our weakness our frailty and our weariness that we're just tired many of us have tried running this race in our own strength and many of us have looked to everything under the sun but we have neglected to set our gaze upon you Jesus turn our eyes from lesser things Let us look ultimately to the day when we shall see you in all your majesty and your glory. And that as we look to you, we will never be disappointed. Have your way with us. Lord, just give us a love for you and for pursuing you. Let us run this race with passion. See us to the end, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So one of the things that we do every week, church, that we, uh, we t- take the Lord's table together.
and this is one of the ways that we intentionally turn our gaze toward Jesus every week that we're together. What I want to do today is I just want to read a course. We'll read 1 Corinthians 11 as we take communion, but I just want to read Philippians 3, verses 12 through 21. Just as we prepare our hearts for the table. And let this be of encouragement. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. and Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These last two verses. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we ask this morning that if you do not know Christ today, that you would refrain from taking the, the table. And instead, take Jesus instead. Come to us, pray with us. We'd love to speak with you. But if you are in Christ this morning, let us remember that our citizenship is in heaven and that one day our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. That day is coming. Let us see it through to the end. Let's pray. Thank you for your redeeming work on our behalf. Jesus. Thank you that we await a day for all will be made right. All things be subject to you. All will be under your authority. We wait for you, Jesus, knowing that you are returning. How we look to that day, we long for that day. We desire to see you. And so, as we take the bread and the juice this morning, this is a symbol of our longing to see you and also the promise that we will see you one day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The table's open.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. And for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he We are, um, this month, in the month of October, we're praying for the Chech, uh, sorry, the Czech people in Chechia. Um, and this is a people uh, who have a population of just north of 10 million. It's 10,089,000. Um, there are about 26% Christian adherents, but only 0.7% evangelical. And so they're still classified technically as unreached from our perspective, um, one of the things one of the things that's happening there in the Czech Republic is um, it is it is secularizing quickly, uh, and we know something about that, do we not? Why don't we take a moment and let's pray for the Czech people um, that that God would open their eyes uh, that that to, to the secular world around them, the secularizing world around them. Um, and, and that they would just be open to hearing gospel proclamation and not dismissing it out of hand as, you know, silly myths or ancient tales, fairy tales, um, but that they would receive it as the very words of life, which it truly is. So let's, let's pray that God would soften their hearts toward that. Father, we have heard the words of life today. We have sung this glorious gospel by which we are saved and in which we stand. The ancient gospel that has been proclaimed um, for thousands of years by your church and to the lost. And, uh, we, we turn our attention to the Czech Republic and just ask that you would soften the hearts of those uh, in a secular Eastern European culture that seems more and more by the day closed off to, uh, to the supernatural, to claims of revelation, 
to um, the possibility of salvation or the need for salvation, the presence and reality of sin. God, all of these things uh, seem as just idle tales to a secular culture, and, and yet, God, they're true. And, and it is this message that has the power to save them. And so, God, for those 26% that would claim to be Christian, would you open their eyes and help them to forsake um, simple nominal Christianity, Christian in name only. God, help them to be true, real, genuine believers in Christ. And God, for those uh, who are just lost, God, would you soften them, make them receptive, and then raise up some from that 0.7% or even someone from outside to proclaim the good news of Christ to them that they might repent and believe and be saved. And so we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just a handful of announcements for you before we go. This Wednesday night is going to be Men's Gathering, and it's happening at Mike Branham's house, uh, and that's at 630. It's just right over here. If you need that address, it'll be in the newsletter. We'll post it on Facebook, or you can come see me, and I can get you that address. Uh, October the 11th, that's going to be. Men's Gathering, 630 at, um, at Mike Branham's house. And then October the 28th, that is a Saturday at 2 o'clock, is our fall festival. We still need trunks for the trunk or treat. Um, so uh, please see Ronnie Williams. Uh, contact Ronnie Williams to sign up for that. Um, and I think that that's all that I have. Does anybody else have anything to say? So here's what I want to do for our benediction today. We're going to, y'all stand up with me. We're going to uh, kind of mash together three different scriptures uh, as a responsive reading. And so I will read, and then I will, I will gesture to you for you to start reading, and then I will read, and then I will gesture to you again to start reading. Um, and it's going to be Luke 24, Matthew 28, and Acts 1. Um, there, are, there is a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, cheering us on, who are bearing witness to the goodness of Christ. And our job in this life, part of the race that we run, is to bear witness to the goodness of Jesus to people who are still living. Uh, and so this is what we do. We're his witnesses. And he's going to say in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So we can praise God that the witness of the gospel has reached us. And we have to bear in mind that our job is to be his witnesses as we go uh, throughout our days. So, Luke 24. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And everybody together... But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So go in grace and peace and be a witness to the goodness of Jesus.
you're dismissed. Have a great day.